You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, February 27th, 2019, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santamaria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Good evening, folks. So did you guys all see John Oliver's segment on psychics? I missed it. Didn't see it yet. <laughs> so no, I good. Saw it. it was on, awesome. Bob. It was really good. I, I love the fact that he, he starts by saying, now I'm not going to litigate on this show whether or not psychics are real. They're not. We're done. <laughs> you know, oh my God. Good wonderful. Start. You don't have to get bogged down in the, you know, that question because it's there is really no controversy there. Uh, and then he just went on to expose the industry of fake psychics. He said it was a $2.2 billion industry. Yeah. Wow. Think about mm. that. $2.2 billion for nothing. Right. Nothing. Then that's yeah. that's the reported income. And there's probably yeah. a whole black market of who knows how much more money gets spent on this stuff. Yeah. That doesn't include the grift. That is just totally dark. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The cash that payments. Dark. Yeah. Yeah, he definitely, this time, you know, I felt like he, he just was dense with content. He had a lot to say, a lot of great examples. I loved when he uh, made fun of Dr. Oz. That was like just, oh, yeah. just spot on. He did a couple of things where he was showing, who's that psychic that, that said the grandmother was a biatch? Oh, John Edwards. Yeah, John Edward. Yeah, <laughs> John <laughs> Edwards, so he's a real scummy person man oh. He's just they're all scumbags yeah but they really showed him it was like one of those non i mean it probably ended up on tv at some point but you could tell that it was like lower quality cameras yeah. it wasn't like the slick made for his tv show part and he was just doubling down on being a douche like he was saying <laughs> like to, he was cold reading because john oliver was explaining cold reading and he was like i'm sensing that there was like conflict with a mother figure like somebody didn't like him and the person was like no i don't know what you're talking about and he's like listen i can't like this is what the spirits are telling me and if the spirits are going to say your mom's a bitch the spirits are going to say your mom's a bitch Holy and we were like crow. what <laughs> Wow. John's John's not as smooth as he used to be, I guess. He is the biggest douche in the universe. It's official. It's it's what I I hear. Even that. He beat out Douchella from the planet Douchiness. (laughs) Right. No, Ursula the giant douche. Uh, Ursula, (laughs) thank you. (laughs) He came in second after John. I highly recommend Uh, watching this, this episode in part because we were talking over email. We did an SGU video that you can see on our YouTube channel where we go over the insane idea of a psychic talking to dead people and coming up with really weird information like that. Like if, if that were true, the premise of the video is what's happening in reality. Yeah. Yeah. Like what are the (laughs) spirits telling the psychic if they're saying, does your name start with an M an N? Uh, and you know, did there's, there was something, you know, damage to the the head or the chest or what what killed your father or whatever. We we (laughs) kind of had fun with that. It's almost as if they're playing charades with the, (laughs) <laughs> with the uh, the dead with people, the undead, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then uh, that one thing that John Edward did. I mean, God, he is such a douche. He goes, <laughs> <laughs> he's in a uh, densely pop, a densely populated Irish community, right? And mm-hmm. he's like, is somebody here? I'm I'm hearing the name like O'Malley or O'Sullivan, <laughs> O'Sullivan, or O'Brien, O'Brien yeah. O'Flanagan. Oh, like, oh, he literally yeah. says, oh something. <laughs> <laughs> like, if you, are you kidding? And then John Oliver is like. Are you kidding me? <laughs> like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Oh my god! 
It was so you know, pathetic. Like the, the, the cold I'd love to see him do doing. that bit in Harlem. See what oh, he says. Oh, yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I think it was like my favorite part, I think, was when John Oliver, and it was just a little bit at the very end because he spent most of the time talking about cold reading, right? Like what cold reading yeah. is, how you cold read. But he yeah. also talked about hot reading mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. he talked about and it what was it john edwards in that scene too where he was talking to him oh gosh what's his name from the today show who's obviously not on it anymore matt lauer but, yeah matt lauer mm-hmm. yeah. and um and he was doing the psychic thing with matt lauer and talking about his dad who he used to go fishing with and he sees all this quality time that they spent together. and matt lauer's like getting visibly emotional and then he's going on and on about how important it is it wasn't john edwards it was a different like younger, yeah it was a younger guy psychic. yeah, yeah. Yep. but i guess hot reading is just literally googling somebody it's yeah, doing yeah. Mm-hmm. research in advance and basically just having ringer information and of course matt lauer has discussed this multiple times on air. It's been written in op-ed. So he basically just found info about Matt Lauer because he's a public figure and talked about it as if he was conjuring that info from his dead father, which is so gross. Yeah, and how yeah. credulous is Matt yep. Lauer? I mean, are I you know. kidding me? <laughs> are you but kidding? It's also- in today's day and age, like you're, you're going to buy that hook, line, and sinker? Like, But you please. have to remember that like when it's emotional content like this, people are going to feel more connected to it. Like Matt Lauer's Mm -hmm. not the one. I mean, yeah, he did something wrong by giving this guy a platform on air. So, yes, maybe he is also just as guilty. But it's the it's the quote unquote psychic that's doing the gross stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have a funny anecdote about hot reading. So Evan and I were investigating this channeler. Remember that, Evan? DeHartma. Yeah. And she, and as, as the spirit, she gave us like, you know, a reading, right? And it was, it was a pretty pathetic cold reading, but a couple of things she said made me suspicious that maybe she was trying to throw in some hot reading in there. Mm. So she was pretty insistent that I had a boat ride in my future, mm-hmm. right? Like, okay. Yes. Remember this, Evan? I do. Very, very insistent about that. And it was peculiar. Uh, right. So to the point where it stood out, like, why, why was she so confident in that aspect of her, of her cold reading? And if you know me, like, I get horribly motion sickness. I'm not going anywhere near boats, right? That's just not <laughs> okay. happening. But at the time, if you did a search on my name online, an image would come up of me cosplaying an admiral. Right, with the okay. big hat, yeah. you know. The yeah, big, I wonder. As I had the one. I wonder if she saw that and thought that I, I don't know, <laughs> was into into boating or something. That I you're a boat captain at all, Steve? <laughs> I would say yes, she did. I would be very confident. <laughs> to think that she did. Or a Society <laughs> right. for Creative An- Anachronism, something like that. You something. Know. Yeah. Yeah. John Oliver was also talking about the Long Island psychic, and he said uh, she was being interviewed on on some Daily Show, and the the woman interviewing her said, "So how come?" If you can get these detailed information from the dead, how come the dead don't tell you things like, you know, who, who killed, killed them? them? <laughs> and yeah. she goes, important she goes oh, no, no. I promised myself long ago that I'm only going to be de- dealing with positive information. And it oh. was such a BS answer. It was so right. pathetic. <laughs> Like oh really? So wait a second. So let's let's follow no, no. your thought through. That's Don't give positive. me any useful information that can be independently verified. I want to keep this all positive. Yeah, she right. said she only wants to use her gift to help people seek comfort. Oh yeah. my gosh! And it's like oh, so you want to tell people what you think they want to hear? Hmm, cool. It was so transparent and charge for it mm, and charge <laughs> for it. Yeah. yeah, and take advantage of them when they're really vulnerable. Ugh. 
And Jay, he played the "Your kid's dead" segment. Kid's dead. Oh. He did. He did. He <laughs> played. That was brilliant. Sylvia, Sylvia Brown. Your kid's oh, dead. Yeah, oh yeah. The yeah. horrific part of that story, which I either didn't know or completely forgot, was that this was Sylvia Brown on the Montel Williams show. Yeah. Oh my and gosh. This woman came in. I guess a lot of people came in to get advice from Sylvia Brown. And this woman in the audience said, my, my daughter was abducted. I think it was years ago at this point. And is my, you know, what's the status with my daughter? And Sylvia Brown tells her in the, oh, famous line, the kid's dead. Um, <laughs> and it turns out that that girl who was kidnapped was watching that show as she was kidnapped years later, seeing her mom on the show. Being told that she was dead. Yes, and she had and always hoped that she would end up on the show. She's like, I remember watching Montel and hoping one day my mom will go on here and they'll be able to tell her where I am. Yep. So How sad is that? That that had to be horrific for her. On top of being, you know, at the time she was kidnapped. I would add, yeah. you know, that you know that was kind of a hopeful moment for her that got crushed, and then she had to watch her mom live through the agony of facing. Her, her daughter's death. Like imagine seeing that. Ex- you don't. Ever, how would you ever see that expression on one of your parents' faces that they they're confronting your death? It's disgusting. And talk about having one of those eureka moments. Like a lot of times, you know, in skepticism, people will ask us when we're at conferences and things like, when did you realize that you don't believe in God? Or when did you realize (laughs) that you really are a skeptic? Or when did you? And it's always like there was, for me at least, there was no eureka moment. It was iterative. But like she's watching and the psychic is like, oh, yeah, she's dead. And she's like, wait, no, I'm not. You're not real. It's sad it has to come to that for Mm -hmm. some people to come to the realization of that that these people are charlatans right. and frauds, yeah, and, and nothing and she else. Was it's funny because she was just going with the odds, she, you know, because the odds are the kid w- would have been dead in ninety nine percent of the cases. The, the kid, right? Yeah, of course, and that's what, and that's what they do. It's just an example uh, of the, of her playing the odds, and of course, it just went wonderfully wrong for her. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and then she had nothing to say about it after the fact when it was when obviously the truth came out. Brown had nothing to say about it. No remorse, no apology, no anything. And the thing is, it doesn't matter, right? Because (laughs) people are going to still go to them. They just just, just move past. It's like their career's over. That didn't, you know, end Sylvia Brown's career when she did that. And she had nothing but contempt for the people who followed her and believed her. Just Mm -hmm. like most con artists, right? They just have nothing nothing but contempt for the people they're ripping off. Yeah. Oh, it's it's cold and heartless. And these are just, ooh, wicked people. Freaking people, man. Yeah. Yep. But okay. It's a great episode. You should definitely watch it. Absolutely. And go check out our video on YouTube. Yeah, it's Passing Away is the name of the video. It's actually one of the, my favorite videos that we produced. George Traub is in there, and our good friend Doug Sabone is uh, in the leading role. Yeah. And if you look hard, you might see Steve somewhere. You might 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 see some skeptics lurking in the background. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, and, and I'm the skeleton in the audience at the very very That's end. That's right, you are. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on. So, Kara, yes, you're going to hit us up with a what's the word? Whoa. Hit you up. What's the word, you guys? This word was recommended by I think her name was yes Polly from the UK, hey, um, and she recommended the word plenum. Plenum. You guys have heard plenum. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or maybe mm-hmm. even more likely you've heard plenary, like yes. a plenary yes. session. Yes. Right. So that's the same root. So when we look at the word plenum, it has a lot of different meanings, but they all come back to the same uh, like etymological root, which is the PIE, right? We've talked about that before, the Proto-Indo-European root 
pele, which means to fill. So um, the word plenum is taken from the Latin of the same spelling, which means a full space. So that's sort of in opposition to an empty space or a vacuum. And the usage that we often think about in science is more like the physics usage. And that really has to do with a space that is full, like as in it's not a vacuum. It is a space that has gas within it. It has uh, matter, any type of matter, fluid, actual like physical particles, but the space is full. And there are actually tools, like there's something called a plenum chamber, and that's a an actual chamber that's pressurized with gas or with mm-hmm. other stuff in it. You also will hear it a lot in like HVAC conversations, which yeah. I didn't realize. But yeah, there's a lot of um, con- uh, conversations around like I- an air mixing plenum, which is a mixing box. And that's where the ductwork comes together. And so you might have air that's circulating from one part of a building to another part of a building and they mix in the plenum. Um, So those kinds of spaces are are common things that you'll hear about. And then, of course, I think the more common if you are not like an engineer or you don't work in these fields, the more common usage that you might have heard has to do with an assembly of members of a group, particularly with regard to like a legislative body. Mm -hmm. A plenum is a a meeting of of individuals. Yeah, right. We, and we also did talk about that, like a plenary session, maybe at an academic conference or something like that. But that usage is actually newer. So from what I gather, the first usage in the sciences or just in the idea of like a space having stuff in it, not being empty, is um, was used in the 1600s. And not until the 1700s did it start to apply to like a plenum of legislators. Um, it's one of those interesting terms that I think started as a more, I don't want to say a, a perfectly scientific term, but it started as a more technical description of something that eventually evolved into a more literary description, which I think is really cool. Mm-hmm. When did you, I mean, is that mostly how you guys, I don't think I had much heard the word plenum before. I mean, I knew of it, but I don't think it was a regular part of my vocabulary. Oh, definitely not a, not a part, part of my vocabulary. Yeah. Not but a regular yeah. part. Yeah. I, I, I mean, first... I've never actually used it in a sentence. Yeah, I don't think I had either, but I have definitely used the term plenary session. Yeah, plenary is the one that I've used. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like the plenum chamber, which is the opposite of a vacuum chamber. Yeah, uh, right. Yeah, it's anything that is, it has to be under positive pressure, apparently, not just full, but under like greater than atmospheric pressure. You know, yeah, uh, I wouldn't have thought gotcha. of it that technically way either. Be a that, plenum chamber, that's yeah, cool. te- to technically be the chamber, but a plenum, yeah. an air mixing plenum, does not have to be under positive pressure. No, no, like, <laughs> that's yeah, just the, like the engineering duct. use. Like there's yeah. a, there are <laughs> plenum cables, which are you know wires that can go through the plenum spaces in a building. So I guess it's yes. the parts of a building that stuff could be in. Yeah, exactly. Whether you've got heating, AC, any sort of like return airflow, things like that, that's a plenum space. But a plenum chamber, there you go, is a much more technical thing that is uh, has positive pressure. Kara, let me ask you, yeah. do you know what a plethora is? A plethora? Yeah. A plethora. <laughs> but it's apparently not the same root. But you guys don't, don't know that, that that's a quote uh, from a movie. You don't know. Yeah, oh, Trace Amigos, the Three Amigos. <laughs> yeah. uh, Jay, you're not going to get me with the Wait, movie. Wait, what's quote. the context? Uh, it sounds Wait, like you... plenum. <laughs> oh, and I'm wrong. Hey, Jay, it is huh? the same root. Yeah, like plenty, hey. plentiful. Yeah, it's, from, plenty. it's from that Pele, the P I E Pele, which is okay, to be plenty, full, right? right? So a plethora of something is an excess of it, so it's full or it's filled yeah. up. I dig it. Uh, oh, my cool. my first experience with the term was plenipotentiary. 
Oh, Ooh. yeah, yeah. In, yeah. The, in the political sense, when uh, someone has full power to take action on behalf of a group of other people, like a rep- hmm. representative in the government. Yeah. We got some neat news items coming up. Jay, you're going to start us off by t- telling us about an expanded DNA code. What? Really? Yep. Yes. Wait. Yeah, this is uh this one is uh potentially has some amazing possibilities here. But let's let's talk about DNA real quick. Mm-hmm. DNA stands for Bob, I know you you've memorized this and I'm going to oh, let you God. say it. Thank you, Jay. Deoxyribonucleic acid. Right. So <laughs> I, I remember I got it. I'm at work. All right, here's a little story. Quick story. I'm at work. <laughs> Dad calls me. He's like, "Bob, what does DNA mean?" And I'm like, what, 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 deoxyribonucleic acid? And he's like, oh, and, he, and then he told his friend, he's, he had a buddy he was talking to, and his buddy told dad, no, everyone knows DNA, but nobody knows what the hell that initialism stands for, although I, didn't, I don't think he used the word initialism. Yeah, and, probably uh, So it uh, was just a, a fun little memory. But to me, it was just like, who doesn't know what DNA stands for? But whatever, just a, just came to mind. So as you know, Bob, DNA molecules <laughs> are in the shape of a double helix, you know, very iconic, twisted um, ladder. I, a ladder, right? It's a twisted ladder. What movie ladder tried to introduce the triple helix? Was that Prometheus? Was that? <laughs> I think it was. No, the movie. Oh, no, no, gosh. the movie that introduced the triple helix was Multipass. You know. Oh, oh yes, yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Fifth Element. Fifth yes. Element. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah, thank yeah. you. <laughs> and who do we have to thank for knowing the structure of DNA? Rosalind Franklin. Thank you. I, I'm so other, glad that's what you said. Guys. Yeah, Watson and Crick, whatever. But Rosalind Franklin. Extra diffraction, baby. I'm I'm one sentence into my news item at this point. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so interesting, Jack. Let me just talk for a little bit. <laughs> so I wanted to say, if you don't know what DNA or the double helix looks like, look it up just so you have an idea. It's a really beautiful thing to look at. So the although double- Jay, I hate to derail you again, <laughs> but if you if you just look up like an image of DNA, most images you will find are wrong. That ladder kind of description. The the, the two things that if you're not – if a scientific illustrator is not careful, there's two things that they generally get wrong. One is the direction of the helix. Mm -hmm. Oh, interesting. And the other is the number of steps per turn. Mm. So you have to go to – it's wide, then skinny, then wide, then skinny. No, but it's like how many base pairs are there before you make a complete 360 rotation in the helix, right? So if if you – those are those are details that are important to the actual chemical structure of the molecule. But if you, you know, most people just like, oh, it's a double helix. They just draw a random. They don't pay attention mm-hmm. to those details, yeah. and and you get a, a schematic that actually is is incorrect in in a couple of important details. So be careful. Be careful about the image you look at. But to be fair, if you gave me the legit one and the, the you wouldn't kind, know the difference. I don't know if I would, but you know, it's still a biologist thing. would. Yes, yeah, trained biologist, you know, by trade. Uh, so anyway, so the double helix is encoded with genetic instructions, right? So these instructions contain everything about your body. And in some futuristic technology, we might be able to replicate someone's body, not their brain and their memories, but their body by the DNA. You mean a clone? A clone, pretty much, yeah. But I mean, you no, know, exactly a clone. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's what a clone is. That's right. Yes. Um, so DNA <laughs> uses... We could already do that with animals. We just haven't done it with people yet. Dolly, Dolly. Well, sheep. so they say. Well, <laughs> yeah. We don't China, China, things are going on in China. You know. yeah. <laughs> so DNA uses four base chemicals to encode its information. So the first one is 
uh, adenine, which is A, cytosine, which is C, guanine, which is G, and thymine, which is T. T. Now, let's call these four different base chemicals. Let's call them- They're also called nucleic acids. Wait, I don't think mm-hmm. that the base pairs are called nucleic acids. DNA itself is a nucleic acid. It's a nucleotide? A look- yeah, they're nucleotides. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. You're right. It's yeah. a nucleotide. They're nucleotides. Mm. And I'm it sorry. makes up the nucleic acid. Yes, but the individual nice. ones are nucleotides. Yeah. Correct. Okay, so on February 22nd of this year, a study was published describing how scientists have created an eight-letter synthetic genetic language that so far seems to transcribe and store information like pre-existing DNA does. This is profound. So what this explicitly points out to us is that there's really nothing, I don't want to say there's nothing special about human DNA, but there's nothing unique. Yeah, you don't have to consider it unique. Like we always thought that DNA had something prescient and unique about it. Like, oh my God, it's DNA. It's like, you know, it is It is magic. the building block <laughs> of of life. But the fact is that they were able to create, you know, four more of these DNA letters, right? Or nucleotides. Nucleotides. Within yeah. the DNA. Because we already have another nucleotide. It's just in RNA. Right. right. And, that, and that uses uracil. If you take these nucleotides or the letters, the four letters of DNA, certain mm-hmm. ones can connect and match up to a, another one, right? So that would consider when they connect, that's a step in the ladder. And then and A to T and G to C. Right. right. Oh, always and forever. So scientists have been trying for decades to add more base pairs to DNA, like these connections of the nucleotides to make another step in the ladder. So back in 2014, a lab was successfully inserting a pair of man-made bases into living a living cell, you know, into the DNA of a living cell. So just like naturally occurring DNA, these synthetic base pairs have to do things in a predictable way. The latest study that came out last week demonstrates that the synthetic base pairs that they've created bind to each other and the double helix, and they they form a sound structure exactly, so far as they've observed, exactly like natural human DNA. What the scientists did to create these synthetic base pairs was to tweak the molecular structure of naturally occurring ones. So in human DNA, the four letters pair up because they form something called a hydrogen bond, and each letter contains hydrogen atoms that are attracted to nitrogen or oxygen atoms. That's it. You have an atom on the left, a hydrogen atom, connecting to either a nitrogen or an oxygen atom. The four letters described that I described above they're, they're like a Lego set. That's what the scientists describe them as. You know, they, they click together. If they have the right knobs and holes, they will click together and form a base pair, which is one rung in the ladder. So mm. the scientists modified the holes and prongs to come up with, with several new kinds of base pairs. They named these S and B and P and Z. So the S and B connect and the P and Z connect, like the Lego blocks like I described. Now, they also combined the four synthetic bases with naturally occurring ones. So th- that's remarkable. And they're calling the new eight-letter DNA language, I think it's pronounced uh, Hachimoji, which is Japanese mm. for eight. It means eight-letter, which, you know, that's cool. I like that too. Uh, in order to test their new synthetic DNA, uh, they, the team had to demonstrate that the new letters would reliably form pairs with other letters, like I said before. And they also had to show that the double helix was gonna, was not only structurally sound, but would stay structurally sound, regardless of what synthetic pairs what the order that the pairs were in, because I guess like, you know, there's, there's something to the order that they go in as well. And this was critical because genetic sequences have to be able to vary without destroying the structure of the DNA. They had to finally show that these base pairs could accurately transcribe into RNA. The lead scientist who developed 
the uh, DNA, his name was Benner, he said, you have to be able to transfer that information into, mo- into a molecule that does something. Meaning it has to, the reason why, you know, DNA is important is because it's instructions. It tells, it tells the body to do things, create this, do that, those types of instructions. And they proved that their new four letters can deliver instructions. So this is, it's got to be big. Yeah. So to be clear, the, the breakthrough is that you have, you could mix these eight now, the four natural and the four synthetic, you could mix them up in different orders and have a stable molecule. And the affinity of, uh, the, of the, the, the base, the new base pairs binding with the one that's supposed to is very, very high. Right. So the S and the B always bind together and the P and the Z always bind together. So those are the two key features. Now, the, when they previously, cause we had talked about like the artificial DNA with, with six base pairs, but those, and I don't think I know, knew this at the time, those were hydrophobic. And as a result, you, you, you couldn't have them next to each other in the DNA. They had to be spaced apart. So the configurations with those base pairs was very limited, but these, have the same kind of binding as the natural nucleotides. And so these can be mixed in any order, at least as they've, as they've decided so far. But the, the, the limiting factor so far is that they, they have not tested whether or not transcriptase, the enzymes that copy the DNA will work with this new DNA. They don't, they don't, they have no idea how the enzymes are all going to deal with this new expanded artificial DNA. Yeah, wow. I was I was wondering if you were to insert these into a human cell, you know, and co- try to come up with instructions. Yeah. I mean, would would the body be able to read what you're? Don't talking? know. You know, like I I know I don't know a lot. I don't know details about this because I'd imagine that it's not just one base pair; it's thousands of base pairs that are an instruction. Correct? You know, yeah, yeah. It's not one sentence. It's like you have to have chapters of information here to tell the body to do something. So. I guess that it, you know it, it makes sense that the body would be able to read it, but it, you know, but what would the instruction be? And there's a, there's a layer to this that I, I wanted to bring up because I find it fascinating is that this could be a, an a, amazing way to store data, like just yes. store data, yeah. data, data, super like dense, pictures, videos, yeah, you know, text, everything, everything that we store on Google Drive. Like you know, you might be able to store it in DNA. And the thing, the remarkable thing about DNA is it's amazingly uh, data rich, meaning it, it data dense, it, it can store a lot of data, and it could potentially be, it could it could last you know for millennia, many many millennia. The, the classic one of the classic problems though is like the, you know the uh, the read times are kind of slow uh, for that kind of stuff. But I mean, if it's you know if you're certain things for archiving doesn't matter for archiving it doesn't matter as much. Yeah, 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 yeah. It'll be interesting to see yeah if it ever ever comes into a, has a net niche and it ever comes into use in any way, but. In terms of translating this new DNA into proteins, because that's what the DNA does, right? You have the trinucleotides, right? The three nucleotides code for one amino acid in a polypeptide, which gets folded into a protein, right? That's that's what that's what the genetic information is. So, what would the transcriptase? What would it do? Like, what would the machinery that makes proteins out of DNA do when it comes across one of these artificial nucleotides? We don't know. We have no idea. Will it be confused? Quote unquote confused? Just say, okay, I guess this is where we stop because this doesn't code for anything I know of. It doesn't right. fit. Or will it just say, I'm going to treat that like an A? You know, is it sim- too, is similar enough that it's going to treat it as something else? But that's about it. Now. 
I don't know what else it could do, right? There's only in, in the, the, the machinery of a normal cell, there's only 20 amino acids, mm-hmm. right? And then there's there are stop codons, right? So there's codons for each of the – there's multiple codons for each of the amino acids because there's 64 possibilities, right, with four base pairs. There's 64 possibilities. Right. Uh, in, a, in a trinucleotide code because it's basically four cubed, 64, there's 20 amino acids. So most have two or three you know, combinations that code for each amino acids, plus they have some stop codons. So now you have, well, how many different possible three-letter combinations will there be with eight, right? It'll be eight cubed. Yeah, so it's 64 times eight. So that's 512. So instead of, instead of 64 combinations, it'd be 512 combinations. What would it do with all those combinations? We don't know, you know, that's... And now, but if we, if we had an artificial life system that had more amino acids or did different things, you know, had different kinds of instructions for the transcription process, then we would have lots of options. Steve, do you feel like, you know, this could actually lead to nothing or do you you feel good about this technology? We will definitely learn stuff from this. It may not lead to anything practical. You know, won't it won't necessarily. Um, it may not, you know, have any use in normal biology. It, we may or may not utilize this for artificial life. I'm again, I'm, we have to figure out what we would what would be the point of having eight nucleotides versus four. And for data storage, who knows? Like who knows if we'll ever get to the point where it's practical as a means of data storage. But these are the kind of things that you just do to do them and then we'll worry about what the practical applications are later. You know what I mean? Does this translate at all into monsters? Life well not maybe. X-Men? Life in other worlds. <laughs> um in other words, right, more more potential combinations of things that do work, therefore the chance of advanced life out there may be even greater than we might have assumed before. I mean, I don't think it affects the chance that there's life out there, to be honest with you, but what I think it does mean is that when we do encounter fully alien life that has no common ancestry with life on Earth, then the possible different types of life are, are is great. Like, it's not like our DNA, you know, Earth DNA is the only stable configuration. That's what this tells us, that there's multiple other possible stable configurations of of the basic structure of DNA. There might be all sorts of molecules of inheritance mm-hmm. that life that, that alien life is based on. There may be different assemblages of amino acids in their proteins, or who knows what kind of weird biochemistry that they'll have. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is just sort of expanding the range of possibilities of what that weird alien biochemistry could be. You know, it won't all settle on, like, this is the only stable molecule that could do this, and so it's going to eventually settle on this. No, it's not true. That's why it almost certainly would be completely incompatible with life on Earth. There's right. not going to be any half Vulcan, half humans. I know they, <laughs> ret- they retconned that whole thing, but yeah. you know what I mean? It's just that's not going to happen. Or bacteria killing the uh, the invading aliens. Right, right. Yeah. Exactly. All right, Bob, tell us about quark matter. Yes, sir. So, um, okay, I love quarks. I'm just going to get that out there. Uh, <laughs> Why do you love a quark, Bob? <laughs> They're fundamental. Who doesn't love a quark? Scientists are trying to learn more about fundamental particles by observing some of the most intense events in the universe – Collisions of neutron stars. So this is in the latest issue of Physical Review Letters, and um, it has two reports from two 
separate international research groups. Uh, both groups described their calculations of what a gravitational wave signature would look like were the, co- the collisions themselves to convert part of the neutron star into an exotic state of matter called quark matter. So, okay, there's a decent amount to unpack there. So let me open up the suitcase. And um, mm-hmm. so gravitational waves, we've certainly mentioned them before, but regardless, I'm still going to drone on about them a little bit right here. Uh, there's the, they're wonderful little vibrations of space-time. As Einstein predicted. Yes. Uh, I don't think he used the word wonderful, but he was, I'm sure he was thinking of it. He um, used the word so, wunderbar. So uh, now these are caused by uh, – these ripples are caused by titanic releases of, of energy. LIGO, Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, uh, made his history in 2015 by officially detecting the gravitational waves for the first time, uh, awesome. in this case, uh, from a black hole collision. So this, this was an amazing event in, in science history. This opened up a completely brand new branch of astronomy called gravitational wave astronomy, and uh, this represented a completely new window into the universe, qualitatively different from just detecting yet another wavelength of electromagnetic radiation Different beast, different t- t- horse of a different color, uh, which 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 is great because it gives us uh, a new information that that radiation uh, really couldn't do it. So revolutionary it was, as Yoda would say. That How two, revolutionary was it? That just two years later, in 2017, it won the Nobel Prize in Physics. I mean, if you could do that in two years. That's something special. So yeah. um, since then, of course, they found many other signals that we've mentioned on the, sh- on the show and you've probably seen them in the science news, including neutron star collisions, which is what these researchers are addressing. So now the proposal being made is that by looking at the specific gravitational wave signal that's produced by such a, a collision, we could tell if quark matter was produced by the intense energies and, and pressures in, involved. Now, quark matter is one of the plethora of states of, of matter. Uh-huh. Uh, in, this, <laughs> in this one, uh, the constituent quarks and gluons have escaped their proton and neutron or some other hadron uh, confinement, so they are now free to mingle like they've, they've never done before, especially at low energies. Uh, this matter only exists in extreme environments like the early universe, Particle accelerators and Jay's bathroom. <laughs> so uh, neutrons. Hello. That's do, a different yeah, kind of particle. Lots of quark matter in there. So neutron star uh, collisions uh, would certainly classify as an extreme environment. I mean, imagine two stars, half again as heavy as our sun, squished, squished that all the way down to the size of a city, and then fling it at e- at each other at a significant speed <laughs> fraction of the speed of light. So that that is kinetic energy, my friends. So such an energetic collision produces insane amounts of energy. Some people I've read have compared it to the energy the sun releases in 200 million years. Blam! What? One one quick collision. That's how. <laughs> blam! And blam! Whoa! <laughs> so, and much of that energy, much of that blammy energy, is converted into gravitational wave energy that that propagates away. And the shape of that wave that our LIGO detectors detect can tell us lots of information, including if quark matter was created during that that collision. So so one of the papers is proposing that the collision, the colliding neutron stars would create waves with a different phase than theory predicts. And this they claim would happen uh, because of the quark matter that's forming throughout the collision before it collapses into a black hole, right? Because if you got two neutron stars colliding, 
Yeah, lots of stuff happens, gravitational waves, but the ultimate state of that is going to probably be a black hole because it's just going to be way too much matter for the degeneracy pressure to hold it up anymore. Black hole is born. So the other paper describes a scenario where the rapid creation of a core of quark matter would cause the gravitational wave frequencies to be higher than expected. So those, so that's, so they're both kind of looking at it from different angles and they both, and they both could certainly be true. So to see these signals and test their calculations, though, they need to, we need to accomplish two things. They can't do it right now. We need to upgrade the gravitational wave observatories, and we need a little bit of luck. So uh, Andreas uh, Bauswein, physicist at the GSI Helmholtz Center for Heavy Ion Research in Germany, said, basically, we need a higher sensitivity of the detectors at high frequencies, and we need a particularly close event. So not only do the, do the detectors need to be more sensitive, but we got to get lucky and have a neutron star collision that's fairly close. And by that, I mean around the distance or closer than the event from August 2017. So that's 40 megaparsecs, 40 million parsecs uh, or 130 million light years from Earth. So that's really far, but it's also kind of, you know, kind of close. But, you know, uh, who knows when that's when that's going to happen. This uh, field is advancing very quickly. The technology is advancing very quickly. Hopefully, we'll have uh, the sensitivity required. So one other little tidbit. All right, let's move on. Answer me this, guys. Yeah. When do you think was Four for one. The, the first creature on Earth that was mobile? That could actually well, like move from place itself. to place. When? When you mean like yeah. what how, year? How, what are you talking about? Yeah, how like far August twenty first. You know we're present. How many years ago? I bet you it's Camp- longer ago than we are, think. Are we talking about now. some microbe that developed a tail and pushed itself along in the soup kind of thing? No, this has to be something I could crawl around. Not so okay. not microbes just wiggling around. But like how about a mobile plant. Uh, how long ago? Ah, yeah, two hundred fifty million years. No, 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 no. Way no, more no, than no, that. No, 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 no. Yeah, you're way, way off. Uh, oh, way off. One billion. One billion and one day. <laughs> uh, Price is right rules. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say in the billion years ago range. One billion years. So the currently well-established answer is about 600 million years, right? So Cambrian very explosion. early in the Cambrian explosion when you started to get multicellular creatures that could do stuff like that. But – it's possible we may be pushing that date back to 2.1 billion years ago. Oh, that's uh, a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 1.5 billion years earlier. But these kinds of claims are always fraught with a lot of difficulty. Yeah. Right? But the researchers published a paper that is being both simultaneously praised for its extreme rigor hmm. and criticized for its conclusions in that a lot of biologists are skeptical of the conclusions and don't quite buy it based upon the evidence that was presented. But they say, but they did present, they really did dot every I and cross every T. Good job, guys. I just don't buy your conclusions. Mm-hmm. So here's what they found. There are fossils, right, of tubes, like through sediment. Okay. The question is, is this a trail of like a slimy, moldy kind of creature oozing its way through the muck? Or is this an, a not a, a, a fake, not a fake, but a false fossil, an abiotic geological structure? At this point, the bottom line is we don't know. But again, the researchers presented some pretty compelling evidence. They, uh, for example, showed that the, the type of phosphate found in these tubes 
uh, matches the kind that you would find by creatures at the time breathing phosphorus, right? Because there wasn't a lot of oxygen in the atmosphere 2.1 billion years ago. Mm. There's a lot of other types of metabolism going on like like phosphorus, chemosynthesis, right, Bob? As yeah, you like and so that's they said that's it that's interesting you know the fact that you know that it, it matches what you would expect if it was being produced by critters and not just by geological forces but other scientists say yeah but it's possible that these were just cracks in the rock that were filled in by mats of single of algae or some single celled organism you key, it doesn't prove that this is a trail left behind by something like an aggregation of cells moving like a slime mold would move. And of course, how would you prove it? We could only infer it, right, from the evidence that we have. So it's interesting, right? So we have these very, very pretty microfossils and the little tubes, which, which by the way, were, have been piratized. Arr. Yeah, not quite. <laughs> pirate. You know, you know, pyrite. Pyrite is you know the fool's gold. I have a chunk of it sitting on my desk. It's very pretty. But the the fossil was pyritized because it basically absorbed pyrite from the surroundings. So it's these little gold tubes, you know, very pretty. But uh, it's it's interesting to watch that again. This is one of those stories where okay, if, if true, this is fascinating that there were the other key thing here. This is a few hundred thousand years before. The probable evolution of eukaryotes mm. mm-hmm. based on genetic data of the last common ancestor of all eukaryotes. So, but you know, that dating being a little bit off isn't out of the question, but it is not quite in line with that. And it'd be very difficult to argue that this was bacteria or a K or something. You know, the idea is that this was a colony organism of eukaryotes of some some type that evolved from very rudimentary mobility. That's the idea here. So this does – it's one of those things that raises more questions than it answers, which is always good science. And the scientists are responding with the absolutely appropriate level of skepticism, asking all the correct questions, saying, well, what about this? How could you account for that? These are, here, these were, you haven't ruled out these alternative – Explanations. It's not enough evidence to support the level of the claim that you're making. So it's just that's always a wonderful process to watch unfold. And the public would do well to be familiar with how actual scientists deal with actual scientific claims, you know, and actual evidence. It's like a microcosm, if you will, of just the science in general. And the reason why I think that's so important for the public to be familiar with that is because it's it's so often misrepresented. You know, they're exposed to so much pseudoscience and just conspiracy theories and superficial nonsense. And to anyone who talks to actual working scientists knows that's not how it happens. It's just not. Scientists are appropriately skeptical and, th- and things work their way through based upon evidence. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a nice little story. It's, it'll be a very interesting one to follow. It's interesting either way, whether or not this turns out to be actual fossils or false fossils. Yeah. The process that they'll use to, to come to a consensus either way will be fascinating. Um, and we'll learn something either about geology or biology one way or the other. So 
And the fossils are really pretty. If you just want to see them, you can follow the link we'll have in our notes. Should they not have drawn any conclusions, Steve, and left it just left it an open question? Well, that that that's a good question. The authors addressed that question in and of itself, saying, "No, the, this is our job is to come up with hypotheses to to try to come up with a position and then defend it with the evidence." And then put it out there in the scientific community and let everybody rip at it. That, that's, mm-hmm. that's the process. Yep. But as we've discussed in the past, this process happens in view of the public and is, it is the responsibility of the media and science communicators. And I would say scientists and science institutions themselves to properly communicate this to the public. Sure. So that they're not given don't give them the flashy, you know, headline that's misleading. Mm-hmm. Don't overhype it. <laughs> Don't, you know, whitewash the dissenting opinion. Don't give a false equivalency between sides that are not equivalent. You know what I mean? Just cover it appropriately, which means you do need to have a little bit of an understanding of how science works. And and you also need to have, I think, a uh a sufficient breadth in your conversation about these things. Like you mentioned, for example, genetic data. And yeah. something that's important in science is consilience, right? Is that certain certain fields of science agree with other fields of science when we come up with large theories like evolution, for example. Multiple fields have converging lines of evidence that support evolution. So that's like a pretty solid theory. And so, yeah, like this stuff does not exist. Oh, it does exist in a plenum. And we need yeah. all of that Ooh. information to come together. And I think it's important that when we tell scientific stories, we don't just tell them in a vacuum. Like we sometimes tend to do. Yeah, I agree. And I, I will say the reporting on this news item was just fine. It was perfectly yeah, fine. That's good to hear. And I think it's because there's really no political controversy, right? I yeah, mean, it's, right. It's it is what it is. They talked just to real scientists. There's no fake scientists out there with another narrative. If there were, that's where they screw it up. Right. Yeah, and the difference between 600 million years and a billion years is still older than 6,000 years. Exactly. So, Steve, <laughs> you said that this was well before you, uh, eukaryotes? You, no, you yeah. said only a couple hundred thousand, right? Like 300,000 years. Yeah, it's still before. That's, a, that's an error bar right there. But yeah, it's not. Could it be multicellular prokaryotic cells? Well, they don't think so. That's why that's or kind of important. cells. Because I guess there's no other example of colonies. There are mm-hmm. mats, but not something that would move in a cooperative way, like yeah. like slime molds or individual creatures that all band together and then move the, move each other from one location to another. Like that's <laughs> what they're that's the hypothesis. So that wouldn't. Yeah, but imagine imagine a multicellular prokaryotic prokaryotic organism that just didn't didn't last very long. Exactly, because mm-hmm. you know evolutionary cool. niches are interesting. If it was before. Eukaryotes had even evolved. There might be some niche there that, yeah, or maybe know, it's some transitional eukaryote, mm-hmm. right? That didn't come out of nowhere. But yeah. it's it's interesting to think that there's two billion years of evolution happening before the Cambrian explosion. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, in this era, where like all sorts of that's a lot of time. Hell a lot yeah. of interesting <laughs> stuff probably happened during this time. You know. It is interesting. We, and we have very little. It's, it's very hard to know what was going on. Yeah, think on of all, all the we potential failed experiments. Oh, yeah. yeah. Man, if only we could to see what those animals looked like. Yeah. You know, even I'm still the, holding out hope that there's a cloaked satellite orbiting the Earth for the past four billion years that cataloged everything that happened on the Earth. Yeah. Yep. That wow. would be and they, and they stored it all. <laughs> 
in, in DNA, DNA with eight base pairs. All right, Evan, apparently the one web situation is ready to get going. Tell us everybody what that is. <laughs> the one web situation. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Very, very well. All right. After a number of delays, the company OneWeb has finally, finally launched its first batch of satellites that are going to provide internet access to rural regions around the world. And the launch occurred just a few hours ago as of this recording. And it was, and it was, well, at least so far, by all measures, successful. Yep. It marks the first step of the company's plan to build a large network of satellites that are going to exist in low Earth orbit and beam down broadband internet to underserved areas of the planet. By tw- by the year 2021, OneWeb plans to offer the first global 5G-ready internet coverage worldwide. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Their, their mission is to bridge the global digital divide, to connect people in the most remote areas of the globe, including those on the move, on the road, in the air, or at sea. Mm-hmm. They envision a world where all people have access and hold the power to create opportunity for themselves and others wherever they are. So that's their mission statement. And OneWeb joins SpaceX as the second company in this new generation of Internet satellite providers to actually put their spacecraft into orbit. Um, They're going to have 650 of these satellites up by 2020. And there's a plan to expand to more than 2,000 of these satellites before their full coverage is complete. Mm -hmm. It'll be... Yep, it'll be built over the course of 21 separate launches to deploy these satellites. Uh, and it will operate, as I mentioned before, in low Earth orbit. That's about 1,200 kilometers above the surface, receiving in the KU, KU band of radio frequency spectrum. Most of the capacity of the initial 648 satellites has already been sold. So that's a good, that's a good start for the company mm-hmm. in that they've already got a, a lot of people and a lot of other companies ready to go in investing in this. So... There is about two, there are about two thousand working satellites in orbit right now, flying at various altitudes, and a slightly larger number of legacy spacecraft that have ceased operations. And because OneWeb is not the only company that's working on a global internet coverage system, it has some experts worried about the potential for collisions if several of these what they call mega constellation of satellites become launched and operated, it's going to significantly increase the orbiting population. Mm -hmm. However, OneWeb satellites have been designed to comply with, and Bob, you're going to like this, orbital debris mitigation guidelines Okay, for removing the satellites from orbit, especially the low-orbit satellites, Yep, assuring that they re-enter the Earth's atmosphere within 25 years of retirement. So these are the sorts of things you have to have as part Mm -hmm. of your plan. Absolutely. In order to... Uh, yeah, mandatory. You can't, you can't just throw things up there anymore and, and not to have any responsibility for what eventually happens to it. We should have a, a international agreements for for that. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, they're working on it. So I found I was, I was I wanted to know. Okay, like if I'm using this network, what's my performance going to be like? Right. So I found that the the five G cl- or six G. This is the this is five G mm. on on the one web. Network. They're claiming 50 megabits per second download. Right. No data on upload. I couldn't find any claim, but it'd be less than that, but no number. I couldn't find a number for upload. Yeah. Isn't that interesting that they can't really pin down an upload yeah. number? And I, I saw that as well, Steve. Nobody could quite figure that out. So I guess they're not, they're guessing themselves yeah. or yeah. just saying, right. oh, we'll, right. we'll see how, how it goes. Or maybe it depends on 
what you're using to upload, you know, I guess. Mm-hmm. With the, I don't know. Could but be. that's not bad. 50, yeah, 50 megabits per second. You could survive with that. So not only is the system going to provide service to places in which you just could never run the fiber cables to, to these places yeah. to do it. You just physically can't do it. And doing it with satellites seems to be the only real practical way of doing it and affordable now that these things are affor- technically affordable. Uh, it will enhance our experiences with our cars and you know being on boats, as they said, yeah, and in airplanes as well. So it's yeah, not forget all just... those poor people. I want access when I'm on my yacht. <laughs> well, you know, it... on my yacht, Jesus Christ. <laughs> well, and more than that, it's going to bring internet to low income, low resource areas. Yeah, them too. And it's also going to bring internet to field research stations, yeah. which is really important. There's so a lot important. of places where scientists, um, whether we're talking about scientists who come in from you know major Western hubs or indigenous scientists are working on the ground collecting data, and it's really hard for them to analyze their data, to upload their data, to do anything with it because they don't have internet access. Yeah. No, yeah it, would, right. it would be great to be able to get access to the internet from anywhere on the planet, no oh matter gosh. where you are. It would be huge. Yeah. It would be awesome. All right. Thank you, Evan. Yep. Kara. Uh-huh. So scientists are looking for the signature of consciousness, apparently. How is that going? Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. super, <laughs> so super complicated article that I chose to cover. Not sure why. Um, it was published in uh, Cognitive Neuroscience. Um Science Advances, uh, the Cognitive Neuroscience section of Science Advances on February 6th, though, so this month. And it was a multi, um, multidisciplinary, multinational team of scientists who wanted to look at exactly what you said, signals or patterns of consciousness. So as we've talked about on the show gazillions of times over, in many respects, there are, you know, there's a handful of real holy grails in science, like dark energy, for example, is a big one. Um, Even understanding dark matter. In neuroscience, I'd say probably the biggest holy grail, and you tell me if you agree with this, Steve, is how does brain become mind? Or Mm -hmm. how, you know, how is consciousness formed? What is this emergent property of the brain? And can we measure it? Can we pin it down? And so these researchers are looking at systems level understandings. And what they decided to do is to actually compare the brains of people. So this is not animal research. This is not modeling research. They said, I'm going to look at the brains of people who are basically unconscious. So they compared um, normal, healthy, neurotypical, I think is the best way to put it, brains of alert, awake people with brains of people who have um, are basically in a persistent vegeta- vegetative state, which what do they call that now? You something, UV something? Unresponsive wakefulness, wakefulness syndrome. Wakefulness syndrome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is basically a, a, a vegetative state. And they also compared that to people who are under propofol anesthesia. So they wanted to see, okay, if we induce a lack of consciousness versus individuals who are not brain dead, right? They are alive, um, but they are minimally or or not at all conscious versus people who are wakeful and fully conscious. And what they found were actually four 
patterns of brain activity. So they record um, from the brains of these people, and then they take all this data and they start looking for patterns in the noise, right? We talked about big data before. We talked about some of the problems with that. But they did this over and over and over again, and they started to find some emergent patterns that seemed to hold pretty decent water. And they called them pattern one through four. Um, (laughs) And um, they found that there were some really distinct differences, especially between pattern one and pattern four. Pattern two and three were different enough that the algorithms and the tools that they used, you know, said this is a distinct pattern. There's a statistically significant difference between this pattern from those patterns. But what they found was that in practice, they could predict predict the consciousness state based mostly on patterns one and patterns two. In pattern one, they found that it was highly complex. It was, you know, very spatially complex. It traveled long distances. And what ended up happening is that the brain activity wasn't just sticking to what we could maybe call the architectural structure of the brain. So we know that within a brain, there are neurons and those neurons form these different pathways and there are different clusters of cells that do certain things or that produce certain neurotransmitter. And we've known for a very, very long time about certain pathways in the brain, like a dopamine pathway. We know what that looks like and we can map it out, for example. And what they found is that this pattern one was like really kind of stochastic in a way. It was all over the place. And sometimes it would follow a more structural pattern. And sometimes it would bounce around and do all sorts of weird, non-predictable things. Whereas pattern four was very predictable in a way. It followed classical, like kind of the classical roadmap of the brain. It just did what you would think that neurons would do if you were building out a relatively simple pattern based on the maps that we already understand of people's brains. And so patterns two and three were somewhere in between. But they did actually find some differences between people who had minimally conscious states and people who were uh, highly wakeful alert in that the wakeful and alert people tended to dip into two and three more often, whereas the um, minimally conscious people tended to stick with their pattern, this pattern four. Every so often, though, they did show signs of pattern one. I think that was one of the most interesting findings. And the researchers actually talked about that in the end. Like, why is it that people who were basically unconscious under propofol anesthesia periodically showed evidence of these highly complex brain patterns that were indicative, in their view, of wakeful consciousness? And there were, you know, there's different um, hypotheses around that. Maybe they do have moments of wakeful consciousness, but we don't know it because they're not moving. Or maybe there's a natural tendency for the brain to jump around through these patterns. And they use that as as sort of a way in. They're saying, hey, if we can learn more about this and if all of this um, this sort of modeling uh, stands up to scrutiny, maybe there's going to be a new way in from a medical clinical perspective to help bring unconscious people out of that unconscious state, right? The persistent vegetative state. So there's, I mean, I think they spun it as hope. Who knows if that's going to be the case, but it is an interesting little tidbit to the research that even unconscious people who are showing a very predictive pattern of brain behavior dip periodically into this pattern that is more predictive of high consciousness. Now, the question though is, is this the only pattern? Yeah, probably not. Um, is this really – there's n- nothing about this research uh, points to the fact that this is what causes consciousness. So we've got to be really careful to understand that. All we're seeing is that there's a correlation between unconscious people and pattern four 
and conscious people and pattern one. And those conscious people tend to dip into two and three more. Unconscious people don't. But we did see a very strong correlation, and this was the cool thing, between unconscious people who are unconscious because they were put under anesthesia via propofol and unconscious people who are unconscious because they're in a coma, a, a, a persistent vegetative state. And that is pretty interesting that their brains are doing similar things. So there's something about these patterns. It doesn't appear to just be noise that maybe as a starting point, we can learn a little bit more about the nature of consciousness from. It's complicated as all hell. You got to read the paper multiple times to really understand it. But it's pretty cool to see these different fields coming together where we've got neuroscience, we've got neurology and medicine, and then we've got, you know, mathematics, uh, big data, um, uh, physics, and engineering sort of working together to start to try and understand these things from a network modeling perspective. Yeah, I mean, this is interesting, but I think it's a very small piece in terms of understanding what causes consciousness, if you of will. Of course. And they, they point blank are like, yeah, we're not studying the causes of consciousness at all. That's not even our attempt. We're just trying to look at what happens when somebody already is unconscious. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting yeah. marker at best. But we all, the other thing is we don't know is this could represent – a necessary but insufficient condition for wakeful consciousness. And so it's pro it's I would say not only could it, it's probably highly likely that this represents a necessary but insufficient. But and the uh, reason why that's pattern. important is because mm -hmm. I think the 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 most rapid application we can we can have of this is just diagnostic. It's trying to understand somebody who clinically is comatose, how yeah. much is going on inside their head. We can't really examine it because they're not conscious enough to examine their thought process, but what can we infer about how much thought is going on based upon these kinds of patterns? And yeah, that's that why is interesting. It's, yeah. So, and, and, you know, what, what we're finding is that in general, there's more going on than is apparent by their exam because yeah. you could, depending on the kind of damage, et cetera, you could be basically paralyzed, but you could like, that's like at one extreme end of the spectrum, there's locked in people who are intact cognitively, but completely paralyzed. That, but, but versus people who are who are vegetative, who are not, they're just not there cognitively. There's no process going on inside their head. And then there are people in between, like minimally conscious, who there's a little bit going on, you know, not enough to be wakeful. And from a medical perspective, yeah. we only know, or like a neuropsychological, however you want a neurological perspective, all we can measure is behavior. Right? right? Like that's all we have access to. So we talk about like sensory motor stuff. Like there's input coming in, there's, uh, there's action going out. But if s s one of those lines is broken or if we're incapable of getting, we cannot measure thought. We just don't know how to measure thought yet. We don't know how to measure emotion. We're inferring mm -hmm. it from EEG and yep. from fMRI. And this is just another way of using that. So this is just looking at fMRI data, just look at what patterns are are can we get one light layer deeper not just to say is anything happen what pattern of activity is happening and is that a marker of one state versus another well this will this will probably get us a step further to being able to better understand how what the potential of a comatose patient is to mm -hmm. have anything resembling consciousness 
at present, it probably doesn't make much of a clinical difference. No, I don't think so. I mean, and that's why the headlines, I think some of the decent headlines are decent, right? Brain scans decode an elusive signature of consciousness. Like, okay, this is just giving us a little more information than we had before. I think the only clinical piece, which of course researchers often want to put in because it helps with funding and it helps with, you know, getting people excited, is this idea that even people who are under propofol anesthesia, even people who are minimally or basically functionally unconscious, tap into what they think are these patterns that are only in wakeful consciousness. And if you can maybe do something with that, understand it better, somehow put them into that place more, who the freak knows, maybe there's something there. But of course, as we said, this is not causal. It's just, it's an overlay. We're just understanding what's already going on in the brains of individuals. But I think it's really cool. And it it continues that conversation, which is sort of an ever present argument within, you know, psychology and neurology, um, medical circles, even philosophy circles of like, can we ever truly measure consciousness? Like, Mm. not only how are we going to do it, but is it even possible to do it? Or is this emergent nature so stochastic that it can never be predicted and will never actually be able to model it. Um, It's cool to see that people are actively modeling it right now and at least you know, starting to dip their toe in that. Right, right, right. I think where it probably – the most useful – the greatest utility for this kind of thing is in patients who have no activity because Mm -hmm. then we can say there's really nothing going on here. That's easier to say. Then yeah, and that might be more helpful for parents. That's really helpful. It's really decisions. helpful if, if we yeah. could yeah, tell the, help the family know, yeah, the prognosis is zero. You know, it's not mm-hmm. just small. It's actually zero. There's a big difference between small and nothing. If oh, you are, for a lot of people. Yeah. yeah. So to be, able, to be able to say, okay, there really is no chance at all. We've proven that to a high degree of certainty. Now I feel more comfortable letting go. Because people, yeah. they don't want to have their family members, quote unquote, blood on their hands, right? They don't want to be, I, yeah. they don't want to be the one Live to pull with the that plug. Regret. And yeah. also just yeah. to be able to say things like, they can't hear you, they can't feel you, they can't um, experience pain. Yeah. They can't, they're not capable of those things because of their consciousness level. Whereas in other situations, what we're seeing more and more, right? I mean, you alluded to this earlier, Steve, is that there's probably more going on than we think in most situations of minimal consciousness. And so, you know, being near them, being in the room with them, that's probably also comforting to a family. Talk as if they're here. But yeah, but what we don't know is we don't really know what's going on inside their head. We don't know if they're having any kind of awareness. Well, we can't rule it out, really. We can't rule it out. And also, even when people come out of those states and they say, I don't remember it at all, it's very hard to know if that's a function of memory failing them or if it's, you know, like a protective function or if they literally were not, had no awareness during that stage. Yeah, but they could have, they could have had awareness, but not be forming, not long term memories. memories. This weren't, yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right. Thanks, Kara. Jay, it's Who's That Noisy time. All right, guys. Last week, I played This Noisy. What is it? Someone getting hit by something. <laughs> so I had I had lots of guesses. Um, a lot of people were guessing the same thing. So we had a few things revolving around this idea. Andrew Hansford wrote in, a tree creaking in the wind. But there was a lot of people that wrote in, like, trees falling down and rubbing against each other which are all incorrect. Matthew David Sekadat, who gave me the pronunciation of his last name because it does not really – I guess I would have 
had one in 10 chance of uh, pronouncing that correctly. <laughs> he said, my son, Miles, age 10, listens every week and declared that this week's noisy sounds like a parrot scratching open the packing tape on a cardboard box and then something jumps out of the box, scaring the parrot and making it squawk. <laughs> wow, that's elaborate. It's wow, very specific. Yeah, this uh, this listener also had brought his 10-year-old son, Miles, to Nexus 10 years uh, ago. So he was there wearing Steve's name badge as a baby, which he sent me a picture. Really cool. So Miles, no, that was incorrect. Incorrect, but a good and very descriptive guess. And keep on sending me those guesses. I have another listener that wrote in, Jessica Nayez, Nayez, something like that. Um, mm. She said, the noisy in the 216 episode reminded me of some strange sound I heard while camping in Sweden a while back, which makes me guess a moose, possibly a mating call. And then she said, almost sounded like trees rubbing against each other. <laughs> so, Whoa. Isn't that funny? A lot of people heard that. So those are both incorrect, but interesting guesses. I don't know what noises mooses, misus make, but that's probably something a lot about similar to trees rubbing against each other. Isn't it just moose? moose. I say moose. I say mooseskulls. Mooseskulls. That's fair. Yeah. That I think that's an accepted huh. plural. Yeah. So Justice Smith wrote yeah. in and said, "Hey Jay." And this was the winner for last week. He said, it sounds like someone lighting a match, then dropping it down a pipe of flammable gas. The gas ignites, explodes, and frightens the person who lit the match or possibly their unsuspecting coworker. <laughs> <laughs> no way. Um, so Justin got this 95% correct. This is Whoa. so correct. I gave him the win. So listen to how complicated this is. This is somebody lighting a firework. And throwing it into an oil drum, sealing it. The oil drum inflates, which is that noise you hear. Then it explodes, goes launching up into the air. A guy screams, and then it lands on a nearby car, very close to a nearby car. Ooh. Oh, boy. And then after I cut the video off there because I didn't want to give away too much, you hear a lot more yelling and screaming. <laughs> but, man, Justice, you, you got that so close. It's ridiculous. Like, that was a complicated series of events. I thought that was really cool. So I'd like to thank Mark uh, Hertog for sending that in. I think these are fun. I, I think it would be fun to do – I'll mix some of these in more. So if you have any cool videos of, like, a series of events happening – that have a cool sounds to it, that could be fun because I, I really enjoyed a lot of the emails and I, I was thrilled that this that Justice like, he figured it out. How? I don't know. Maybe he saw the video, but it was a great guess if it was a guess. So we have a new Noisy this week and the Noisy was sent in by a listener named Jacob. So here is the Noisy. <laughs> amazing how we can infer things just from from a, a sound you know like you don't know what that is but you but felt it's, it's a it's a caterpillar sleeping and it's a little snoring noise it's making. <laughs> <laughs> i really i really thought this one w was interesting because uh, maybe i won't give you any clues good mm -hmm. luck on that one it, th there's something something cool about this one email me at wtn at the skepticsguide.org with New noises that you heard that you're just dying to send me and any guesses that you have. All right. Thanks, Jay. We have a name that logical fallacy. This one comes from Ryan from Germany. And Ryan writes, 
So I was wondering if you could identify for me what I think could be a logical fallacy, but I'm unable to put my finger on which one. I've seen it crop up in the context of politics very recently, but it occurs in discussions of science as well, such as in the context of climate change. The idea is as follows. The overwhelming majority of relevant scientists agree that something is happening or is true. And there is a small fringe percentage of scientists and other groups, people who deny it. Though when the debate is presented on TV or in the media, a lot of times we see one person arguing against one other person, giving the illusion that scientific opinion is split 50-50 as opposed to 98% to 2%. To use a silly example, I, let's, let us say that 99 people out of 100 believe the sky looks blue, while one person out of the same 100 believes it looks red. If you were to have one pro-blue person debate one pro-red person, we might be presenting the illusion of the two sides are equally plausible when in actuality this is not true. In short, I am wondering if it is a logical fallacy to portray two sides of an argument as if they are equally valid when in reality the evidence for one side is far stronger and compelling. Of course uh, it is. A false, it's a yes. false equivalency. False equivalence. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a false equivalency or false balance. Uh, we do encounter that quite a bit. I mean, so it's, it's partly based upon, in this particular example, when you're talking about scientists, the argument from authority in that it's basing, you know, it's trying to create a false argument from authority, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, find somebody who has PhD after their name. Yeah, and, and therefore, that's a, that's a legitimate opinion, you know, without yeah. even, re without referencing, well, yeah, but that's like the one outlier. You guys saw that John Oliver, right? Like, speaking of John Oliver uh, on the show today, you saw that one where he had like what a fair argument on cable news would yes. look like. And he brought 99. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> 97, yeah, 97. Yeah, 97, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was pretty funny. Yeah, so that's basically what we're talking about. So this happens for a couple of reasons. One is that people who are on the fringe are usually desperate, in my experience, to portray themselves as legitimate. They want a seat at the table. Uh, and if unfortunately, that seat is often given to them by the other big problem in this equation, the media, who they like to have side A and side B. You decide, oh, it's a controversy, yeah, right? Yeah, right? Without properly putting into context, you know, the fact that, yeah, this is the vast majority of scientists on one side and a lone crank on the other side. Uh, if you don't give that that context, then you are creating a sense of false, uh, a false balance or false equivalency. Well, and that comes from a, a, a noble place, but it's gone awry, especially when it comes to things where there is scientific evidence to support it. Because journalism, yeah. in a way, like science, is a means to explain what what's happening in the world. Mm -hmm. It's like it's a it's a tool, an epistemological tool to like figure out what we know. And so in journalism, the historical thing that you're supposed to do is you're reporting on a story and you see it unfold and then you interview somebody and they say, this is what I saw happen. Well, you have to have somebody else who saw it somewhat differently, because if you only present an argument from a single perspective, it's going to be, um, I think – at most journalists would agree, it's going to be a biased argument. But when it comes to science, we're not really talking about perspectives anymore. We're actually talking about empirical data. Yeah. And a lot of times, you're always, yeah, it's different rules. And the problem is we're, we're applying the same rules to science journalism that we do to war reporting or that we do to courtroom reporting or, or politics, you know, whatever the case may be, yeah. or politics. And it's just, it can't work that way. Mm-hmm. 
there's a vast middle ground where it gets kind of tricky. Like, because I've been on both sides of this. I've, you know, been in situations where I'm presenting, you know, various sides to an issue, and then I get accused of false equivalency just because just for mentioning that there's another point of view. But that's you doing like the charitable argument thing, right? Well, yeah, partly, but it's not just that. It's just that. Like often, for example, like if we're if we're talking about oh well, pseudoscientists will claim A, B, or C, and then it's very common that somebody will come back and go, oh that's that's not fair. You're picking on you know fringe arguments, you yeah. know, like whatever it is. Like if, we're, if, if if we are criticizing cold fusion, right, and we say mm-hmm. supporters of cold fusion have said A, B, and C, then some other supporter of cold fusion will say. Those are not the core arguments that we're making. That's not you're not fairly representing our position. And it's like, yeah, but I'm I'm addressing the claims that are out there. You know, yeah. these and are also, the like, claims that are out there. Your N is so small. Like, yeah, uh, you know, saying A, B, and C versus D, E, and F is arbitrary at that point. Well, then also they're making a no true Scotsman argument. They're saying, well, he's not a mm-hmm. real cult, you know, right. cult fusion mm-hmm. advocate because uh, we get that like the astrologers love to do that. Well, he's not a real astrologer. He's a sun sign <laughs> astrologer. He's not a sidereal <laughs> astrologer. Whatever. That's right. My like, pseudoscience. And the, the difference is, yeah, it's like <laughs> comparing different pseudosciences. Exactly. Or, yeah, he's not a real psychic or whatever. Uh, it's like, okay, but to some extent we are addressing what's out there. So I, I get that journalists will do the same thing. They will say, well, what's, what are the claims that are out there? Let's make sure that we're addressing them. But they just have to put it into context. That's the thing. Yeah. And, they, and if you don't have at least a minimal scientific literacy, you won't know how to do that. You won't know that, you know, people who think that, you know, schizophrenics are, are possessed by demons is mm-hmm. an outlier opinion, right? You'll think, oh, is, you know what I mean? They won't be able to immediately, they won't pass the smell test for a real, you know, scientist, but, um, journalists who are not science journalists just say, oh, that's exciting. Let's talk about that, you know? Well, and that's, I think, really the problem with when we're talking about television news, it's a big problem with punditry versus yeah. actual reporting. Yeah, <laughs> right. Like, One, yeah, right. Having two people get in a ring together and duke Opinion it out, like watching versus, debates on TV, right. like that's not, that's not journalism. No, and, right. <laughs> you know, like that's it's in the op- on the opinion pages. It's just exactly, it, and which like, it does. Yeah. But they don't. But they, but we don't know the difference between that anymore. That we're not talking about print journalism. Sure, they blur those lines. Deliberately. The, yeah, they're fully blurred. It's like every news show is opinion and news blurred together. Yep. And of course, Steve, this would be a good time to plug the incredible chapters in the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. How to know it's really real. In a world increasingly full of fake. Because we do. We dedicate a whole section of the book to, to this to, very thing. Yeah, to yeah. journalism, false and balance. And false balance, yeah. yeah. absolutely. Fake news, the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. <laughs> Thanks for that email, Ryan. All right, guys, let's go on with science or fiction. It's time for science or fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake, and I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake, and of course, our listeners can all play at home or wherever they are when they listen to our show. There's a theme this week. The theme is conspiracy, conspiracies, conspiracy thinking, whatever, all about conspiracy. So these are, how much do you know about this, the social psychology of conspiracy thinking. Mm. Okay. Mm. 
Kara is skeptical. Bob's ready. Kara is skeptical. All right, here we go. You'll see. You'll see. Item number one, an international survey found that overall belief in conspiracies was higher in the U.S. than the eight European countries surveyed. I'll just list those eight countries for you. They were Britain, Poland, Italy, France, Germany, Portugal, Sweden, and Hungary. Wait, so the U.S. was greater than all of them combined? Well, just individually. Yeah, higher than each of them individually. Okay. Item number two, a recent study shows that those who believe in conspiracy theories are more likely to accept and engage in minor criminal behavior. And item number three, current evidence suggests that overall belief in conspiracy theories has been relatively stable over at least the last century. Kara, why don't you go first? All right, let's try and unpack these. An international survey found that overall belief in conspiracies was higher in the U.S. than the eight European countries surveyed. So this is a really good science or fiction because I think all of our gut reactions are like, yeah, Americans are more victim to pseudoscience. Americans love conspiracy theories. Then again, that shows a lack of, I think, cultural competency about all these other countries. I have no idea what their rate of conspiratorial thinking is. So, uh-oh. A recent study shows that those who believe in conspiracy theories are more likely to accept and engage in minor criminal behavior. Ugh, I don't know how that would compare. People who believe in conspiracy theories are more susceptible. They are probably more likely to groupthink. They're probably more likely. And so maybe there's like the correlation. We often talk about how correlation is not indicative of causation because there are intervening variables there. And maybe it's the susceptibility that would lead somebody to engage more in minor criminal behavior. Um, so maybe there's some truth to that. And then current evidence suggests that overall belief in conspiracy theories has been relatively stable over the at least the last century. Shit. Okay, so 100 years, overall belief in conspiracy theories, stable. So we're talking about things like JFK. We're talking about medical conspiracies, vaccine conspiracies, all of that. But of course, there are still people who believe in Bigfoot as they did 100 years ago. There's still people that believe in Loch Ness Monster as they did 100 years ago. Astrology never went away. So, Steve, these could all be true. Why are you doing this to me? <laughs> sometimes I like to take a topic that you're familiar with and then of delve course. one notch deeper. And other times I like to deal with topics that you have no idea about. So this is yeah, obviously stop a Stop doing that. Yeah. <laughs> so a recent study is the only one – oh, wait, and current evidence – but the first one is an international survey, so it doesn't say when they did it. Yeah, it was like um, that was like in the last couple of years, you know. Okay, within, all right. It, so it's yeah. all pretty, pretty yeah, it's recent new enough. Information. Yeah. The one that I want to say is true is that Americans are huge conspiracy uh, thinkers, but I think British people are too. So that one's getting me a little bit. I think I'm going to have to say that uh, although we think America is going to be the worst of the worst, we're probably not. And so I'm going to have to say that that one's the fiction, although there's a part of me that wants the criminal one to be the fiction, but I think hmm. it might be science. Okay, Bob. The, the one about the uh, the U.S. being uh, the most conspiratorial, that's just like – I just imagine Steve thinking that we're going to just leap at that. Of course, the United States is the worst one. It, it just seems like we would be the worst when it comes to conspiracy <laughs> thinking. The minor criminal behavior, who the hell knows, you know, what the connection might be. I can't, nothing's obvious that, that would connect the two to me. The, the, the final one here about the stability, that, now that's one I think we would just leap at and say, no way, the rise of the internet that had to increase the rate of, uh, mm. of conspiracy theories. How could it not? So that, that's just, but that's just too damn easy. 
Um, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna say, yeah, I have to go a little meta sometimes. Uh, so I'm gonna say that the United States one. I'll say that one is, is fiction. Okay, Evan. Crumbs. I was I hoping you guys wouldn't choose that one. It's so hard. Uh, this is hard. Well, but straightforward. There's not a lot to really unpack on the surface of these. I'm really curious to hear the uh, the deep stories in these, Steve. These are good. I wonder if on the second one about the people who believe in conspiracy theories being more likely to accept and engage in minor criminal behavior, if if in that one, do they have some sort of self-justification that they trigger? In other words, like, I know I'm right, everyone else is wrong, therefore... I'm going to do this minor criminal thing because I know I'm right and everybody else is wrong. Right, A justification of some level is what I'm thinking there. The last one about conspiracy theories being relatively stable over the at least at least the last century. Well, how, they really have data on that? Uh, <laughs> how were they were they really did they, was the term conspiracy theory even a thing in 1920? I thought it was very much a more modern concept. And then the other one about, you know, U.S. beating the other eight countries, that one's straightforward. <sighs> Gosh, I'll go with Bob and Kara, but, you know, not I'm not very comfortable in my choice, but I have Me to make neither. a choice. Okay, and Jay? In reverse order, current evidence uh, has suggested that belief in conspiracy theories has been relatively stable. I would agree with that. I think, you know, you, we would think that the internet would have increased it, but the internet also increases people's intelligence and critical thinking, maybe, you know, hopefully uh, at least on equal paths. So I'd say, yeah, you know, statistically, there's probably just as many people now as there used to be. The second one, the middle one here, a study shows that those who believe in conspiracy theories are more likely to accept and engage in minor criminal behavior. That one, I believe, also is science um, because I believe that because conspiracy theorists are counterculture and, and don't have uh, – some of them don't have respect for government or police or you know anything – anybody or body with power, they would be more likely to engage in anti-cultural behavior – or we would say not anti-cultural, but anti-community uh, behavior. So I believe the first one, Steve, the one about the U.S. is is no more conspiratorial than eight European countries. That's I believe that one is fake. Wow, we're all in the wow. same boat. We about we to all. get swept. Guys, all <laughs> yeah, agree. <basically>. So <laughs> I'll take these in reverse order. Okay. As Jay did. We'll still uh, end with the, with the one you guys chose. So number three, current evidence suggests that overall belief in conspiracy theories has been relatively stable over at least the last century. You all think this one is science, and this one is science. Yay. This is very – and again, uh, we are – we do have this sort of remarkable. temporal blinders on. We think that what's happening now is new and unique and everything. Mm -hmm. But so one way that these – I think, Evan, it was you who brought up a good question. Well, how do we know? Like, what do we know was going on back then? Well, they had this thing called newspapers that goes back a long time. And what one study did was they looked at um, 100,000 letters that were published in either the New York Times or the Chicago Tribune between 1890 and 2010. Wow, 100,000 of these things. <laughs> and they basically – uh, graded each one on whether or not they included any kind of conspiracy theorizing. And there's this, essentially this background rate that was rock solid over that 120-year period. Wow. So it speaks it, to the human mind, really. Exactly. Yes. And, and the idea is that this just goes back forever. This is not – it didn't start in 1890 either. That was just – we have a window because of 
we have an archive of newspapers. Um, so people used whatever medium was available to them to spread their conspiracy theories. We know that there were there were conspiracy theories about Abraham Lincoln's assassination. They're about vaccines going back to as long as there have been vaccines. You know, references to to that kind of thing, and even in ancient times. So uh, this is probably just a part of the human condition that's always been with us, you know, and we're just seeing modern manifestations of it, but it's not a fundamentally new thing. Would you think that the internet had zero impact, like I said, because it increases all information? So yeah, maybe, who who knows? And again, this, I, I said suggests, you know, usually I choose my words carefully here because uh, this is just one way of, of looking at this question. There's been, and then I've read multiple references, essentially reinforcing the same conclusion. So this is at least conventional wisdom among social psychologists who are studying conspiracy theories. But uh, I don't know, like the the idea that people who go down a YouTube rabbit hole of conspiracy thinking, were they always going to be conspiracy theorists? Or is it really generating new conspiracy theorists? I don't know. Or is it, are there more conspiracy theories out there to entrap more people? And conspiracy, it's all or nothing, right? Like you know, is this is a binary. A, yeah, this is yeah, binary. This is binary. Yeah. So you believe it or you don't. Like how how is steeped into it is it is irrelevant here. But that may but that may be on the in, uh, on the rise. People yeah. may be believing in more conspiracies or whatever bigger conspiracies. Who knows? So we need more data. I think to to answer to that level. But just there's a sheer number of people believing in conspiracy theories. It seems to be stable over time. You could argue that there's. You know, very recently it's gone up, but that's because we don't have data yet. But you could always say that. So we have something that we should continue to follow. And and there may still be an internet effect that we haven't fully measured yet. We'll see. Uh, let's go back to number two. A recent study shows that those who believe in conspiracy theories are more likely to accept and engage in crim- in minor criminal behavior. You guys all think this one is science and this one is science. Good job, oh, guys. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I'm surprised. I'm su- awesome. Okay. All right. Pleasantly surprised. And <laughs> yeah, so there is, Kara, reason to believe that there is a cause and effect here because the uh, there were these were two studies actually, you know, in, in one one paper, but they, they had two parts of it. The the first study indicated that people who believed in conspiracy theories were more accepting of everyday crime. They basically were saying, yeah, that's okay. And then the second one, they expressed actually the greater intention to engage in in every, what they call everyday crime, like you know accepting a refund when you weren't owed one or whatever little transgressions like that. Um, but they these were linked directly to an individual's feeling of what they call a nomi, a n o m i e. Have you ever heard that term before, Kara? Mm-mm. Mm-mm. What is that? That's a feeling of a lack of social cohesion or shared values. Okay. Yeah. So these are p- conspiracy theorists tend to believe they tend to f- they tend to lack a feeling that they are part of society in a, in a way of a, a shared you know common values. Yeah, that makes sense. Like that makes sense. Different from better than they're like su- like Nietzsche's um, or Dostoevsky's Superman. Yeah, like somehow they, removed from. Yeah, they yeah. they live in a dark world too. Like, well, not mm. not none of it's real. So why should I go by the rules? The rules are fake. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So that may, yeah, it does make sense. It it does make sense. And and there's a lot that we know about the psychological profile of people who 
to, who tend to believe in conspiracies and that that tends to go along with it. They do. They want to feel special. They often feel disenfranchised or that they're powerless, uh, et cetera. So it does fits right along with that. Um, the best predictor, by the way, is a suite of psychological features that are called schizotypal. Oh, yeah, sch- that makes sense. Which include things like paranoia, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, um, and a um, hyperactive agency detection. You know, oh, yeah. inf- inferring agency and deliberateness in random events. You know, that's, that's so human. Yeah, but that's it's so human. The, 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 and there's so obviously there's there's uh, it's it's obvious that people with schizotypal features or or people with full on diagnosable schizophrenia tend to also have high levels of conspiracy theory. Uh, yeah, that's that's like, what I'm obviously. saying. Yeah, it correlates really well with that. Yeah. And then there's, you know, there's always sort of the two classes of conspiracy believers in these studies. There's the opportunist conspiracy believers who accept theory, conspiracy theories, because they happen to be in line with their ideological, political, tribal beliefs. So if you are a Democrat, you think that 9-11 was an inside job. If you're a Republican, you think global warming is a hoax or whatever. But then there's the all-purpose conspiracy theorists who believe in the conspiracy is the thing that they're believing in. And then whatever, it doesn't matter what what tribe it supports or doesn't support. Um, and those are the ones that really show the features, the ones who believe in every mm. conspiracy. Kind of like any time any official statement is made, they believe the opposite. It's a that. false or flag. They, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's all false. Mm-hmm. It's all fake. All right. All of this means that an international survey found that overall belief in conspiracies was higher in the U.S. than the eight European countries surveyed. Is the fiction, and yeah, I was hoping you guys would go for the anti-American bias there. Um, <laughs> but the the guess what guess which country of those I mentioned was the highest? Uh, uh, okay. Ooh, is it Poland. Poland. Hungary. Hmm. Hungary had the okay. highest. We're all yeah. like, we know nothing about Hungary. Yeah, but, yeah. the Let's U.S. Guess. was Pretty kind horrible. of in the middle. It was in yeah. is thirty six percent. So Sweden had the most skeptical country with forty eight percent of people disbelieving nice. every single yeah. conspiracy. Yeah. So if the number you're going by is how many people didn't believe any conspiracy, so Sweden was the highest at forty eight percent. Then Hungary was the was the lowest at fifteen percent, and the U.S. was in the middle at thirty six percent. Mediocrity. I bet you Sweden is Sweden also probably the most secular of all of those countries. I yes. wonder if there's a correlation there. I'm hoping there there is conspiracy thing thinking correlates yeah. highly with religiosity. Yeah, sure, it does. The UK was kind of in the middle with the US as well. Makes sense. But more than you know, overall, more than half of people believe in at least one conspiracy. More than half, you know, and these are all like the crazy fringe conspiracies. These are not like. Plausible ones. Do you know what what is the most common conspiracy theory that people believe in? Aliens? Ooh. No. Nah. No. Oh, the uh, Illuminati. Ghosts. That's not a conspiracy theory. Ghosts aren't a conspiracy Bob? theory. Oh, yes, it, uh, Illuminati. Moon hoax. Illuminati. Evan is correct. What? If you, Evan said Illuminati. If you broaden that to the what New World Order, right? So any yeah. hidden shadow government. Yeah, yeah, is yeah. really running the world, whether it's the Illuminati or the Lizard Men or the Bilderberg, whatever. If you include all of that as one type of conspiracy, that's the biggest single one. Well, and it's funny because that's an umbrella conspiracy that would explain aliens yeah. and yeah. the moon landing being a fake. And sure, all they things. all have components yeah. of the other yeah. more minor ones. Yeah, but yeah. yeah they bring yeah, it all that, in. If you believe that all of these different shadow governments are working together, then they can hide all this shit from us. Yeah, yeah they are. 
shoot. And oh, they wait. are. Oh, they are. <laughs> Oops. I said too much. <laughs> yeah. How did you know the answer to that question, Evan? Okay. Very so quick there. Time for the quote. <laughs> so, guys, you know, even though you didn't feel confident, you did manage to find your way to the correct answer there. Well, I admit I needed a little help on that one. So thank you, um, Kara. <laughs> sure thing. I'm glad my random guess was <laughs> All right, Evan, give us a quote. This quote was suggested by listener Joshua Peckinpah. So thank you, Joshua. All scientific work is incomplete, whether it be observational or experimental. All scientific work is liable to be upset or modified by advancing knowledge. That does not confer upon us a freedom to ignore the knowledge we already have or to postpone the action that it appears to demand at a given time. Sir Austin Bradford Hill. Yeah, that's a good quote. And that gets back to the false equivalency thing that we said. It's that, yeah, so science changes. That doesn't mean that we know nothing, that our ignorance is all equivalent, right? That some knowledge or that all knowledge is equivalent, that some things we know so well that you could pretty much treat it as rock solid. You know, as I like to quote Stephen Jay Gould, who said, it would be perverse to withhold at least provisional assent. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. right. we, we evolved, right? We can say that. We don't have to agonize over whether or not that's true. That's been so well established, you know? And this obviously the thing that this makes you think of. When, what was this dated to? When did he say this? Yikes. Hold on. I, I, you look it up really quickly, but the reason why I, I'm interested is because this is like exactly applicable to the global warming debate. It's like even yeah, there's yeah, we have doubt. We can't. It's not. It's not quote unquote settled in that there isn't new stuff to learn, and we can't still question our error bars and our conclusions. But we have enough knowledge that we know we need to take action. 1965. Wow. 1965. So yeah. So but it's completely relevant today. Oh sure. Yeah, yeah, it's time. It's timeless in that sense. So, yep. As we also to to call back to what we were saying about conspiracy theories, we think that things that are happening in our time are new and unique, but it's really it's every time. You know, like the glo- whole global warming denial thing. Yeah, that whatever. The same issues were were plaguing humanity pretty much forever. You know. Mm-hmm. Hey, quick update on our April twenty sixth day long special event that we're holding in Bethlehem. Pennsylvania with George Tribe of the No Show, A Day of Science, Song, and Silliness. The Eventbrite ticket selling thing has been set up. So go to No Show, that's K-N-O-W-S-H-O-W dot eventbrite.com and uh, you'll be able to get tickets there. All right, guys. Well, thank you all for joining me this week. Sure, man. Thank, thank you, Steve. you. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. <laughs> Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information, visit us at theskepticsguide.org. Send your questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. And if you would like to support the show and all the work that we do, go to patreon.com slash skepticsguide and consider becoming a patron and becoming part of the SGU community. Our listeners and supporters are what make SGU possible. 